Brexit. Whether you voted Remain or Leave, it's one thing many of us would like to hear the end of. The UK is out of the EU. And bar issues around the Northern Ireland Protocol, the country is forging its way as an independent trading nation. Nearly seven years after the 2016 vote sparked countless debates, late-night parliamentary drama and arguments that divided families and communities, the issue, in the minds of many voters, has been settled. Or has it? Welcome to the iPodcast. I'm Molly Blackall, and this week we'll be hitting the streets of Northwich in Cheshire with one of our North of England reporters who's been chatting to voters about how they feel about this most divisive of issues. Why? Well, there's been a striking change in public opinion, revealed in an eye poll this week. So we're also going to be chatting to one of our experts in Westminster about what that means for Britain. And later, we'll be hearing about an intriguing new divorce trend. Money reporter Laurie Havelock will tell us about the modern-day equivalent of stashing money in the mattress and how this scheming has arrived here in the UK. But first, Brexit, the most divisive political issue in a generation. But are Leave voters changing their minds? I has conducted exclusive polling which suggests that 47% of people would rather opt for a closer economic relationship with Brussels, even if this means having to follow more EU rules and regulations, while only 36% prefer to keep the current relationship. More Leave voters now say the impact of Brexit has been negative rather than positive. We're joined by Steve Robson in Manchester and Paul Wall in Westminster to discuss what all of this means. Steve, tell me a bit about your experience in Cheshire. Yeah, sure. I'll tell you a little bit about my visit to Northwich, which is a, a nice town in Cheshire. The reason I picked it was because it voted, the wider constituency that, that it's within voted 50.1% to leave the EU. That was the smallest margin of any constituency in the country. And so arguably, these are kind of the least enthusiastic Brexit voters you might find. So we wanted to see if they might be the kind of people that have changed their mind since um, 2016. Yeah, everybody was surprisingly up for chatting about Brexit, which is quite rare, really. Like I think people have been generally quite reluctant to to get drawn into that one. But actually, people seem to be much happier to sort of engage in it and say, we don't think it's worked, whether that was Leave voters or, or Remain voters. And Paul, how do you account for this kind of apparent shift in opinion among Leave voters? Well, I think what was fascinating about Steve's piece was how he, he captured both ends of the sort of spectrum, so to speak. He talked to pensioners who said, look, we thought things would be better than this. And he talked to one woman who particularly has a sort of problem taking dogs across the Irish Sea to Ireland. It's those little things that impact on people's lives that really matter, apart from the, you know, high level politics I'm often writing about here. I'm broadcasting to you live from within the bowels of the House of Commons. And this place often is sort of seen as quite a bit of a bubble. But actually, most MPs who come here do report back this sort of experience they're getting in the constituencies. And this idea of regret, as they call it, I think a lot of MPs are, are feeding it through. 
because it's a real thing. People can see it in their daily lives. You know, white van man voters in particular who thought that voting leave was a way of taking back control of not just their borders, but their daily lives are now finding if you're a plumber, a window fitter or a mechanic, they can't get parts from Europe. It's a nightmare. Small traders of all kinds are having this problem. You know, the other big thing, of course, is that big red bus with his 350 million quid more for the NHS. Everyone, A lot of people voted for Brexit because they thought we'd get more for the NHS. There's been some studies showing, particularly in the northeast, that that was the most important thing for them. And what's happening? They can see the health service falling apart around their ears. So they think, well, what was it all for? It's no surprise in some ways that there is this regret. But there's also a lot of Leave voters still believe it was firmly the right thing to do. They think that actually the vaccine success in Britain was down to Brexit. They've, they've bought that line and they're glad to be rid of Europe in many ways. But at the margins, if you did rerun the referendum, it seems that, you know, there would probably be a vote to remain. The problem is none of the political parties want to go there. They're all the mainstream ones yet. I wanted to ask you about this, the sort of Westminster reaction, I guess, to how Brexit has or hasn't gone and this kind of concept of regret, which, as you say, we're not seeing among all voters, but does seem to be a factor among some. Is there going to be any political change on the back of this or really is the writing on the wall here? I think there's not going to be a change in the Labour Party's position on, on Brexit and certainly even the Lib Dems, who don't forget, you know, had that famous line of the badges in the 2019 Euro elections, bollocks to Brexit was their <laughs> selling point. Even they're not going back there. But when you talk to Lib Dems, they do say that rejoining at some point is their party ambition. It's just not immediate. So rejoin will slowly come back on the agenda. For Labour, I think it's it's more difficult. Obviously, it's not just those red wall seats with the, with the big leave votes that they've got to worry about. They don't want to be seen to be feeding this perception that Keir Starmer is Mr London, Mr Patronising, who condescends them, who wanted to tear up their vote and rewrite it, all that stuff. However, what's interesting is that their big target is, I think most of them think they've got the red wall back anyway. And what they're really looking at in the polls is a big majority on the basis of all those marginal seats they didn't win in 2010 and 2015. And that's why where Steve went was really important. Weaver Vale is one of the classic bellwether seats. Labour took it even in 2019, but the Tories had held it on and off. And they're very keen on, on making sure they make progress on that. They don't want Brexit to get in the way. They want to say they want a better Brexit, but they don't want to go into too much detail. Yeah, it's really interesting. that, And I, I, one of the things that I found fascinating about speaking to, to the voters in Northwich was that these are people that are, seem to be speaking quite openly about regret and perhaps having an interest in what might come back to the table. It's such a an invidious position from a political point of view, isn't it? Because the minute that you said, shall we talk about going back into, into the EU or some sort of arrangement, it just opens up such a can of worms. No, nobody was willing to say anything like that, you know, oh, here's an idea of what I think would go down well. It's still as difficult a question to resolve as it ever has been. The thing is that people just don't like being politicians saying, we told you so. That's the worst message you can give to any voter. So that's what Labour's got at the back of their minds. Every candidate, every MP, they cannot be seen to say, look, well, we told you it'd be awful. And it is because that is a surefire way of losing votes. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about, Paul, was the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt's comments about our trading relationship with Brussels. Here's what he said on the Today programme. I have great confidence that over the years ahead, we will find outside the single market, we are able to remove the vast majority of the trade barriers that exist between us and the EU. 
Paul, why are these comments so noteworthy? Well, they were noteworthy because he made them on a Friday and the following Sunday, the Sunday Times did a big anonymously sourced story which put the rocket boosters under it by suggesting that there were senior government sources saying, well, actually, yeah, we are going to have to renegotiate some of the trade terms we've got with the EU and we have a closer relationship. Now, a lot of people down here strongly suspect, and probably with some decent evidence, that those senior sources were Jeremy Hunt himself. And that's why the row really, really took off, because Rishi Sunak then had to, on the Monday, come out quite vehemently and say, look, we've got no intention of some Swiss-style arrangement, as they call it, the Swiss model. Talk about the Swedish model, the Swiss model, you name it. And in this case, the Swiss model was the one that was not to be liked because it was basically saying, look, we're going to have trade, but we're going to accept it, all the EU rules on, on the EU's terms. So we want an uneven relationship because we're so desperate to get trade back. However, Hunt quietly tapped into something that a lot of Tory MPs are feeling, which is, look, they know all those messages we just talked about, that people are having trouble with trade, particularly small traders with the EU. And it's our biggest trading partner. So something has to be done. And you can go on all you like about these trade deals with Australia or New Zealand, which add 0.03% to your GDP. Whereas if you get your trade deal right with the EU, then you can seriously affect growth and improve it. Does that put Rishi Sunak in a slightly difficult position? Because you mentioned there that he sort of had to push back on these comments. It sounds like potentially Jeremy Hunt is pushing one thing, he's pushing another. Yeah, I think that's why there was the row. And I think basically Sunak had to kind of put his foot down and put Hunt in his place as much as he could. Obviously, Hunt is unsackable as a chancellor, given everything that's happened in, in the roller coaster ride of the last six months. The last thing you can do for the markets is sack another chancellor. We're going through them like confetti in the last few weeks. So he's unsackable, so he feels quite bold. He can say some of the things that he wants to say. Privately, I think Sunak probably agrees with him. We've got to get a better deal. But anything that talks about accepting EU rules without getting something in return is toxic for the Tories on the back benches. Because I think, well, what were we voting for in the first place? Yeah, there's a bit of tension there, but it'll be interesting to see whether that bubbles up again. Well, let's talk about those back benches. Steve, did you get the sense when you were in Cheshire that kind of deepening ties to the EU and maybe bringing together a slightly closer relationship would be popular among voters. It's interesting, isn't it? There was a comment made by one of the women I spoke to, a pensioner, about, you know, now we've seen two sides of the coin, where a lot of voters, I think, genuinely didn't really have any idea what they were putting themselves in for. And now they do. And perhaps the idea of somebody else as Paul said, not necessarily you know, voters having to take the blame and say, oh, we got it wrong. But if they can be quietly just told, actually, should we just do this without anybody making too much of a, a fuss about it? <laughs> you know, maybe they'd go for it again. But I, you wonder how many people who are very committed Brexiters and the mere mention of deepening ties with the EU immediately gets them frothing in the mouth. You wonder how many people are in that category I think the thing is, so many voters are so fed up of it as a question. Anybody who could offer something that resolves it, at least partially, without there being too much fuss, I think could potentially go a long way. But who is that possible? (laughs) 
Well, it's a good question because don't forget Boris Johnson famously said, vote for me in 2019 and we'll get Brexit done. A lot of people are still thinking now, well, actually, we were told it was done. It's not done at all, is it? Look at Northern Ireland, look at all these problems with ordering stuff on eBay or Amazon. Simple stuff. If you're getting something like a piece of furniture from Europe, it takes weeks and weeks. So as I said at the beginning, the direct impact on people's lives is slowly beginning to be felt. And during the EU referendum, the whole point of the Leave campaign was they they kept very quiet about what would happen to trade because they knew this stuff would happen. They talked about bumps in the road, but actually they're pretty damn big bumps. And they focus much more on this sense of sovereignty, the idea that, look, we really want to control our own lives, our own borders. And it was really quite amorphous whenever we tried to pin Michael Gove down on what sort of trade model, what relationship they'd want. They wanted to bury that. It was much more an emotional appeal to saying, look, we want to put the Union Jack on everything and we want to have our pound and we don't want this awful EU flag everywhere. It's a bit like a couple going through a really rocky relationship and leave voters were brilliant at doing was saying, look, let's just get out of the house. We don't have to sort out who gets the CDs, who keeps the cat. We, I just, I'm just getting out of here, right? I'm just walking out and slamming the door. That worked. Unfortunately, when you do leave, then you do have to sort out all the other stuff afterwards and it's not looking that easy. Well, let's talk about Labour leader Keir Starmer, who was obviously going to be leader of the opposition in the general election, we assume. Before I ask you what you think, we've got a clip of Sir Keir Starmer giving a speech in Leeds on Monday. Now, during the Brexit referendum, I argued for Remain, but I couldn't disagree with the basic case that lots of Leave voters made to me. They wanted more control over their lives, more control over their country. They wanted to create opportunities for the next generation, build communities they felt proud of, have public services they could rely on. Paul, what do you make of Starmer's position on Brexit? He's in a bit of a tricky situation, isn't he, having been a Remainer? Well, he's very conscious of that. He's acutely aware of his reputation as a sort of North London Romaniac, you know, a metrosexual that's out of touch with working-class Britain from places like Rochdale and Bury. But having said that... He knows that at the same time, people are really going to be focused in the next election on what can you do for me? What can can you improve my public services, the creaking NHS, the transport sector, things that are really bread and butter issues like local businesses? Are they going to be helped or hindered by Labour? And that's why they focus relentlessly on the business audience saying, look, we're going to try and help business with local business rates. And he and Rachel Reeves have done a brilliant act in terms of warming up that business sector. It used to be the prawn cocktail offensive. Now it's a scrambled egg and smoked salmon offensive, I'm told. They have lots of (laughs) breakfast with all these business types. They all love what Rachel Reeves is like. She's one of them in the sense that she used to work at the Bank of England. Actually, little known fact, she used to set mortgage rates for Halifax customers and Bank of Scotland customers. I did not know that. She gets this whole thing about the mortgage rises, which have really punished a lot of people. And I think that, to me, that is the biggest thing of the trustonomics disaster. It was somehow the Tories are getting the blame for interest rate rises, even though they're set independently by an independent bank. And, you know, that spike in mortgage rates, which terrified a lot of middle England, middle Britain, people who've just gotten the housing ladder and those who are are about to get on it. And they can see, you know, I know people whose bills are going up their mortgages from next April by more than 700 quid a month. So that kind of stuff is absolutely terrifying for your average Tory MP. And that's ultimately why Starmer and Reeves have been steady as she goes. There's this famous phrase that Roy Jenkins used to have, the former cabinet minister, about Tony Blair's task in getting Labour into power in 97. 
He said he looked like a man carrying a priceless Ming vase across a highly polished floor. And Starmer, you know, he's getting close to the mantelpiece carrying this thing, so he doesn't want any slip-up. So that's why you see a lot of caution in the way he talks and acts. And on Brexit, that's why there is caution. So if Keir Starmer does make it to the mantelpiece with the vase, he does get into number 10. Do you think we could see Labour bringing the UK slightly closer to the EU, you know, building back some of that trade relationship? That's certainly what they want to do, Molly. They keep saying that, look, we will at the very least set a new tone to the relations. They won't be as aggressive. They won't be as obstructive. We'll meet them halfway. Labour wants to develop this idea that Hunt was pushing, which is a closer relationship, removing these trade barriers. The big problem Labour will have in office is they don't want to sap loads of energy and time on that negotiation. They're going to have to focus on bread and butter issues like the health service and everything else. And so they can't have the EU being a sort of distraction if you're a first-term Labour government for Starmer. You can't spend all your time talking about Brussels or going to Brussels. The big difficulty, of course, in all of this is that the EU holds the stronger hand now. You know, we're out. We're not going to go back in on the same brilliant terms we had before. The brilliant terms included getting an annual rebate, which Margaret Thatcher won, where you got billions of pounds back every year from the EU. We're going to have to negotiate the whole thing about, well, will we have to be forced into sort of single currency, the euro straitjacket, and a, and a timetable for that? And I suspect that would be very difficult, obviously. And they've got a stronger hand because basically Britain survives on its services as much as its manufacturing. So although we talked earlier about the goods problems coming to and fro, in Britain, most of its economy runs on services, you know, things like accountancy, law, you name it. And the EU is absolutely delighted that British services are not freely available or freely tradable in the EU anymore because that helps their own firms, their own finance firms, their own lawyers, their own accountants. So if we're trying to somehow get a better deal on that, it's not going to be easy. Well, Steve, Paul, thank you so much for joining us and that really, really insightful discussion. A pleasure. No worries. Thanks very much. To see the results of the iBrexit poll, go to inews.co.uk. There you can also find daily coverage of the goings-on at Westminster from our team of political correspondents and commentators. Reporting like this, without fear or favour, is important. An iDigital subscription gives you daily access to fair and unbiased news, whenever and wherever you are. I is for people with open minds. Our commitment to you is politics without the spin, news coverage without an axe to grind, and lively opinion so you hear all sides of the argument. Whether it's online or on the newsstand, we are committed to bringing you trusted, non-partisan news, and we have a special offer for listeners of our podcast. For more coverage of this and other news, go to inews.co.uk forward slash podcast and get 20% off a digital subscription to i. In return, you get uninterrupted access to all of our journalism. That includes exclusive newsletters from our expert correspondents, access to our app, plus dozens of puzzles every single day. I, for Open Minds, subscribe today. In 2013, the divorce of San Francisco couple Erica and Francis D'Souza was the first of its kind. Couples have been fighting over kids, houses and pensions for decades. But the D'Souza separation had an added complication. 
who gets the crypto? After three years of sparring in a San Francisco court, it was found that Francis D'Souza had not properly disclosed his assets and he was ordered to cough up more than £5 million to his ex-wife, Erica. Almost a decade later, it seems as though Erica may have been one of the lucky ones. While Bitcoin has surged in popularity, its difficulty to trace has made it a perfect tool for mischievous investors looking to shield wealth from their partners. Eyes Money and Business reporter Laurie Havelock has been looking at the Bitcoin divorce and how it's now arrived here in the UK. He joins us now to tell us more. Thanks for joining us, Laurie. Firstly, can you explain to people who don't know what crypto is? What is crypto? Crypto is a kind of digital money, which people are very excited about because they think it might be able to replace our current money. There are several different coins. You've got Bitcoin, you've got Ethereum. And the basic advantage of it is that that there's no bank controlling the issuing of it or the price of it. It's all decentralised. And then the crypto part refers to the fact that your ownership of it is completely obscured to anyone else. You hold it anonymously. And there's also a register in each coin. If you own one Bitcoin, there's a register within that coin of everyone who's ever owned it, or at least anonymously. So there's my there's my elevator pitch for, for cryptocurrency. OK, so tell me more about Erica and Francis D'Souza and this kind of landmark divorce. Yeah, this is a huge case. It was back in 2013. They were a San Francisco couple, very wealthy, who, who got divorced you know, had all the usual questions about who got the house, who got their, you know, investments, what happened to the kids. But they also had an enormous amount of Bitcoin held between them. And it was really where it was the first time that cryptocurrency was factored into a divorce agreement. Took them about three years and a lot of negotiations. And during that time, the value of Bitcoin exploded. So it meant that in the end, Francis D'Souza had to pay his wife, Erica, more than five million quid. I think it was six million dollars and some change. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was significant money. And I think a lot of people, there are a lot of people who bought Bitcoin, you know, even up to 10 years ago as a bit of a novelty who then discovered, oh, it's actually worth thousands. And this has really set the tone for what we've been seeing over in the UK as well. So tell me how crypto is sort of hidden. You mentioned there it's anonymous. It can be kind of kept away from anybody else. So how is it hidden and who is normally doing this? (laughs) Well, it may not surprise many of our listeners to hear this particular prejudice bear out that it is often husbands who are hiding it from their wives is what I found. (laughs) There's all sorts of ways of using it to to hide your assets, right? So the the one thing is your your name isn't attached to it in any way, Mm. unless you have what is called a wallet, a kind of digital bank account where you keep your Bitcoins, your Ethereums, your other crypto. But even that, it's very hard to legally prove that if you have, you know, a wallet, that may have your email address or something that it actually belongs to because it may it may not technically. So if you're, let's say, a spouse trying to hide your assets from your partner, if you buy a load of Bitcoin, it can be very hard for them to go after it, even when it gets to court. You know, you can get even more sophisticated than that when it comes to hiding it. You could, for example, make lots of tiny deposits into your crypto account over time to hide them from your partner or from snooping lawyers. You can even use these things called mixers and tumblers. This is something that a lawyer at Simmons & Simmons called George Morris told me about, where you'll employ a third party to make a load of crypto transactions, so buying and selling Bitcoin, for example, and then mix them all together to completely obfuscate where they came from. And then you can pass the money out to where it's supposed to be going. So there are, there are all sorts of ways which crypto can be used to, to hide your doings. 
I have to say, if you're hiding Bitcoin from your partner through this mm. myriad of devious <laughs> methods, I'm not altogether surprised that things are coming to a <laughs> So yes. presumably the kind of secrecy around this makes it then very difficult to carve up those assets in the way that you could with something like a house or a car in a divorce. Right. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, if any lawyers are listening, forgive my very, I'm probably going to butcher the UK law here. But in the UK, you're basically expected to disclose all of your assets at the beginning of proceedings. So you're meant to say, you know, this is exactly what I've got. And if you're then discovered to have, to have something that you've, you've not mentioned, there can be action taken against you, but it's very minimal. Really, this is the, the nub of the problem is exactly if you've got a couple who are already not on good terms, let's say. It can take a lot of work to find it. And I actually spoke to a woman who's going through exactly one of these divorces, a very acrimonious divorce at the moment, who, of course, didn't want to be identified. And there's very little I can tell you about her case other than the fact that it has been a problem for years and is costing her an increasing amount of cash because she's trying to track down these crypto assets that she knows her husband has. And she says that that disclosure process where you have to willingly, voluntarily say what you have in assets is open to influence by parties who have something to hide because you know there's this asymmetric knowledge is what she called it the only one in the courtroom who has any knowledge of where the crypto is is the person who owns it and has it written on you know the back of a a notepad somewhere so there really needs to be in her view and a lot of people I spoke to view it needs to be education for judges and for lawyers because people who don't have a financial background may not even know what crypto is let alone the fact that you can use it to hide so much So this individual that you spoke to, let's call her Sally, can Sally do anything to track down these investments? You know, is there any law that can help her make people disclose this? What can she do? What tools does she have available at the moment? You can, if you suspect your partner of of hiding stuff, employ what are called forensic accountants to look through their stuff. So I spoke to a guy at Pinsent Masons, another corporate law firm called Hinesh Shah, who has a number of ways that he goes about working out someone's got these secret holdings. He actually works in corporate law more often. So he's often looking at companies who are trying to hide this. But you can look for those telltale transfers from a bank account to a crypto exchange. You can look for internet search history is something he looks at. I mentioned those wallets earlier. Sometimes those are online and sometimes the wallets are held on USB sticks or hard drives, which is a bit more of a secure way. And they're called cold wallets. You can look for those turning up. But these are all quite you know, tenuous things. I then spoke to a company called Cypherblade, and they are a specialist crypto investigator. And they have all sorts of data tools they can use to look through not just bank accounts, but, you know, your internet, the minutiae of your internet history, and all sorts of other very technical stuff to discover it that way. They've had a lot of success, actually. There's a guy called Paul Sybinick, who's one of their forensic analysts. He's worked on over 150 divorces that have some element of crypto involved. They're based in Canada, but he does a lot of work in the US and in the UK. And he says on more than one occasion, he's managed to track down more than $10 million in crypto that one spouse has hidden from the other. So it sounds like there's a bit of a legal gap here where it's falling to sort of maverick crypto investigators, you know, to sort of hunt this money down. And and lots of people are really struggling to sort of access that that money off their partner then yeah definitely i mean the way that paul put it he said it's got the capability crypto has the capability of being the new cayman islands bank account you know you can have all your your offshore bank account in your in your dog's name that nobody ever finds that has all your ill-gotten gains but yeah i think lawyers are finding it a a headache is 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 how one described it to me 
it's Beth Sheridan at Stowe Family Law, just because there is this gap. And it's not just between what people know and what lawyers know, but she, uh, several people pointed out that judges are just woefully ill-equipped to understand this. And obviously in, in our courts, a judge is, is kind of the the arbiter of what is necessary in terms of if you're suspecting your spouse of hiding all this stuff and you want to instruct, you know, a forensic accountant or additional legal work, you have to get the judges okay to do that. And if the judge doesn't really understand what it is or the fact that it can even be hidden, then yeah, absolutely, there's a real problem. I mean, non-surprisingly, there aren't many people who want to come forward and talk about all the gory details of their divorce. But anecdotally, we've heard that it is something that is is on the rise and is also going to become not just the the stay of the the super rich who we've been talking about a lot today and in in the article I wrote but actually it's it's you know there are so many more people who have a couple of bitcoin here and there who've invested into it in the in the recent boom and yeah there's I think there's going to be an awful lot more cases where we see this come up so Laurie crypto's been on quite a wild ride these past few years you know we've seen its value going up and down what kind of impact has that had on all of this there's obviously been, you know, several cases where people have picked up some some Bitcoin years ago and then have found that it's worth, you know, tens of thousands or or yet more per Bitcoin today. So they're, they're realising that they have all this hidden wealth that their partner doesn't necessarily know about. And I, I think that's probably influencing people to attempt to to kind of get away with it. But even more recently, we've seen the, the price of, of several cryptocurrencies completely crash. So Bitcoin's down, I think, 68% in the last year. Ethereum is down by 70% in the last year. That's also providing a bit of a wrinkle because often if there has been money tied up here and, you know, couples are, oh, I, I know my husband's put away, for example, a million pounds in Bitcoin, it may not be worth that much. And that also feeds into that problem of, of non-disclosure because judges are far less likely to okay uh, what they call a fishing expedition, you know, uh, an expensive operation to find out more data if they don't believe there's sufficient evidence or time or financial incentive to go looking for. And there was one lawyer who told me that as a result, they have to kind of look for very askance bit of evidence to kind of work out whether one divorcing spouse is trying to pull the wool over someone else's eyes. So she said there was one husband who was a non-DOM UK resident. Uh, They were going on all these luxurious holidays abroad and they would be asked how they funded the trips. But the judge was just like, well, we don't need to ask them for, you know, your client saying, oh, we went by helicopter to Monaco five times a year was actually not sufficient evidence. Bizarre that that may sound. We also saw, you know, a huge amount of headlines around the collapse of FTX. I wonder if you could just explain for listeners who don't know what that is, just what happened there and any impact that that's had on these crypto divorces. Certainly. So FTX was, I say, was the world's biggest cryptocurrency exchange, which has basically collapsed because of some very complicated accounting irregularities, which you can call them generously, but effectively the boss, Sam Bankman-Fried, sort of was lending different bits of the company money with with other bits. It's a bit of classic corporate nonsense, really. <laughs> but it's filed for bankruptcy. It currently owes its investors up to, I think it's $8 billion we're on now, £6.65 million, roughly. So that's posed a problem in FTX's cases you know, you've got the likes of, of of its celebrity backers. I'm thinking of like Tom Brady, the American football player, and his, his I think, recently ex-wife, Giselle Bündchen. They stood to lose millions just from the fact that this collapse happened and, you know, they had a lot of their money tied up in it. In their, I have to say, in their case, there's no suggestion that any cryptocurrency has been hidden. But what we are seeing is that there are going to be couples who 
have money held up in particular exchanges so it's almost like a bank right it's almost like um you know if you're if you had a load of money in savings with barclays for example and barclays went bust you'd lose out on a lot and um stephen bentz who i mentioned previously he talked about a case where exactly that happened there were a couple who had a load of money held in a failing company and in this case they weren't hiding it from each other but they had millions held here and throughout the legal proceedings for these this exact same issues we've just spoken about they had no idea whether they were ever going to get that money back because it was this bankruptcy process so so long it's going to take years to resolve still so i think we'll we'll probably see fortunes lost effectively in 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 the collapse of exchanges and there are several more that look a bit more vulnerable to that happening too so it could again be a a consistent headline so this could be the new the new sort of big divorce issue then right this could fundamentally change the way that divorces operate in this country I think there is there are certainly calls for more to be done around these disclosure laws and the kind of things that that couples are expected to cough up straight away, just because finding it at the moment is like finding a needle in the haystack. Also, the consequences for improper disclosure, as I mentioned, are really are, are not up to scratch, according to a lot of lawyers. Um, there's a guy I spoke to called Stephen Bentz, who's the founder of, of the financial forensic wing at Vardags, who are quite a big family law firm who concentrate on, on high net worth clients in particular. But he said that the consequences are remarkably low, particularly if you're someone with a lot of money. The kind of worst you can expect is just for those assets to be added to the pot, to be divided up, which is exactly what should be happening. It's very rare that you will get a fine, let alone prison time. So he said that we need to start making an example of offenders because non-disclosure is a a one-way street, really. Well, Laurie, thank you so much for that (laughs) absolutely fascinating insight and not something I knew anything about. Thank you again for joining us. A pleasure. For other news from our money and business desk, go to inews.co.uk forward slash podcast and get 20% off a digital subscription to i. We'd love to hear any comments or suggestions, so do drop us a line at podcast at inews.co.uk and don't forget to write us a review on your favourite podcast app. I'm Molly Blackall. You can follow me on Twitter at Molly Blackall and on Instagram at molly.blackall. Thanks for listening and we'll see you all next week.